Hello, my name is Chris. And my name is Jacob. And you're listening to the Culinary Caucus. The premier podcast at the intersection of food and politics. And tonight, we have a special guest, ladies and gentlemen, introducing Tamara Rhymes with Camera Winter. Give it up, folks. Woo! <laughs> There's no live oh, audience here, if you can tell. Yeah. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> well, great to have you on. Um, and... Let's just go into the introduction. So, uh, what your name again? Well, you can say your name again. Um, expertise, and the worst haircut you've ever had. Well, so my name is Tamara. Rhymes with Camera Winter, also known as Tammy for people who like suburban mom names. Mm. And I love those names. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure I have an area of expertise, but yeah, I don't think I have one. But to the extent that you guys are gonna make me pick one. Let's go with let's go with architecture and sex ratios. And by architecture, I mean whining about brutalism. Mm. Yeah. Greg's expertise and your worst haircut. Uh, my worst hair. My mom shaved my head when I was like four, and <laughs> I'm over that. I guess physically, but I'm not over that emotionally. Hmm. So why, why did she do it? Was it just I think she just didn't. Want, no, I don't know. Right, like my baby revolutionary. No, I think that <laughs> I think she just didn't want to deal with. It. Maybe I don't know. I'm still curious about that. <laughs> awesome. I mean, not awesome for you. I mean, <laughs> you weren't uh, listening to me. And awesome. No, awesome for us to hear. But. No, it was it was a joy for us to hear. Um, <laughs> awesome, uh, Jacob. What is your name? <laughs> oh, you really set me up for that one. Uh, my name is Jacob. Wow. My expertise is pastry making, mm. and the worst haircut I ever had was probably when. Um, a few years ago, I requested a fade and was given some <laughs> kind of... Did you have of... a lot of black friends? Uh, I no, like you don't just ask not, for a not fade. Really. <laughs> not, not Did you really. watch too much, uh, like, Fresh Prince or something? No, no. See, that I was your know. first mistake. You know what? <laughs> should have watched I'm not really Fresh sure. Prince. Maybe I was trying to just be, like, edgy somehow. Mm. I don't know. Mm. But in any case, it didn't work. It was kind of like a two-toned haircut, and it looked more <laughs> like some sort of like latino culture type look <laughs> wow um, i wish i could have been and it was like it, it wasn't the I, you know I, i'm calling this the worst haircut i've ever gotten so i better own it um it was pretty bad uh but that was actually the last short haircut i ever got uh since then i've only had trims and right now i have long hair but i don't credit my long hair to that bad haircut hmm. <laughs> it, just, it, just, it just happened so. that way <laughs> you can't live in in your past mistakes as they say right so exactly ne next time we'll, we'll give you something good all right <laughs> um well my name is chris my expertise is political blogging and the worst haircut i ever got was in sixth grade i did a project on shaolin monks so i dressed up as a shaolin monk and part of that was cutting my hair or shaving my head um, it was almost bald i left a little bit and it was actually right on yearbook day, so we still have that um, that image. I, I admire your method acting, though, so that's, that's a long start today. <laughs> oh, I mean, I went all out for those projects. <laughs> I think that's the only reason I got A's on them. Um, awesome. So uh, now we have the roundup where we go into our news stories before the food item, which is delicious. Um, so, Tam, why don't you go first? Yeah, so I sort of saw the other day on Twitter a really interesting article about a castle being built in Burgundy, France, and it's a project where both volunteers and researchers are constructing an authentic 13th century castle, but they're only using techniques and materials that would have been available at the time. Hmm. So the project started in about 1997, 
and it should be complete in about 2023. So that's a pretty interesting, I think, yeah. article and kind of ties in with our little architecture theme. Do you know if it's being funded by taxpayers? All right. Well, that's a great question. Um, I'm not sure. My inclination would be because it's researchers and volunteers, perhaps in some Maybe sort of small through a way. university or something. Yeah, probably through a university, if oh, okay. if that. So interesting. Very interesting. I, I just see that being a big deal if that were happening here. It's like what a waste of money. <laughs> but that's. I mean, I I respect the fact that they're um, they're bringing back those techniques. <laughs> we're not bringing back, but studying them. I find it interesting that pretty much any topic can be looked at through a political lens, but you can't really look at anything or everything through a culinary lens. Hmm. Well, let's let's see if we can look at your story through a culinary lens. <laughs> oh, this is going to be really tough. Uh, my story is from Fox News. Um, uh, there's a laser that's been built and is being used by the U.S. military called Athena. Um, I believe it stands for something because it's in all caps, but I'm not sure what that is. Um, and it has the ability to shoot enemy drones out of the sky. It mm. takes just a matter of seconds for it to burn out whatever core piece of machinery in the drone, and it'll just fall out of the sky. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, that's another hint that we are in the future. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that, that sounds really exciting. Um, <laughs> now to put the, now culinary... To put in the culinary spin. Uh <laughs> I honestly don't even know where to be. Were they supposed to have culinary spins to them? No, no, no they this weren't. Is, this is a little experiment. We're trying yeah. to see if it's possible. Well, how about we think about it while I give my story? <laughs> so um, Bloomberg is reporting, and well, not just Bloomberg, but really New York Times, Axios, MSNBC, CNN, Fox, any news outlet, um, is basically reporting on the fact that the presidency and both houses of Congress have sort of put forth a tax reform outline. They've basically put forth... Um, a lot of principles on what they would like to see with the tax reform. Um, and, you know, Trump is a Republican president, and that's something that every Republican president kind of wants. It's almost like a given. Like, you're going to pursue uh, tax reform. Bush did it. Uh, Reagan did it. Did Bush Sr. do it? I'm sure he did something. He raised taxes. Well, we read his lips, but yeah. what he told us was different than what happened. Yeah, so. exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, so yeah, so they, they put forward their outline on tax reform and it's not really uh, legislation yet but it's kind of stands in contrast to healthcare in the sense that um, everyone seems sort of unified on the vision right like lower rates simplify loopholes things like that um, that that's kind of the same thrust um, whereas with healthcare it was it was a lot of mixed messages and things like that so um, we'll see if it passes this year maybe or uh, maybe at the beginning of next year but um, yeah so Let's go back to this laser story real quick and tie it into Okay, your... I thought of something. Okay, let's do <laughs> it's it. It's loosely related, but it has to do with lasers and food. Uh, I was watching a video recently that got me thinking about this. Um, this guy who has a YouTube channel called DIY, and the Y is W-H-Y as in, like, why? Why would you do this? Because he does the stupidest projects. And one of the projects <laughs> was, can you make potato chips with a laser cutter? Hmm. Um, or well, there's totally another... Relevant. another Equally stupid one, can you cook pancakes with a laser cutter? Um, and it slightly worked. It didn't turn out very well, but he proved that it was possible. Mm. And I could actually see a future where lasers are used for cooking in a sort of um, 3D printing sense. Mm. So there are 3D printers that exist now that are able to print, and I'm using air quotes here, print food in the sense that um, 
just like a 3D printer, a traditional 3D printer will print out the plastic in layers in order to create the, um, the shape. Um, a food printer, 3D food printer will print out the whatever it is, if it's like chocolate or candy or something like that. They can create shapes like that. Uh, yeah. The laser works in the same way that you put a layer of substance down and then the laser goes over and cooks it and then you add the other layer and mm. cook it like that and keep going. Um, so right now, uh, that's not exactly a commonly found thing, but it's possible. It's, it's possible, possible to do. So lasers yeah. can, I mean, they can shoot drones out of the sky and they can make food. Yeah, but lasers did not make this delectable whatever it is. It's, we, it's called a, it's called a galette. Yeah, let's move on to the... Okay, <laughs> so, so can we just segue. take a bite because this looks delicious. Yeah, yeah okay. All right, we'll cheers, folks. And then we'll talk about cheers. it. Cheers, cheers. This is so good. That good? Wow. Oh my goodness. This, this is, like, is delicious. This is like overwhelming with flavor. <laughs> wow. I hope you, I hope you people who are listening are understanding how much we're selling this. This, this is really good. <laughs> this is like fantastic. Okay, talk to us more. Okay. Yeah, what is this? So this mm. is this is a galette. Galette is a French pastry that is basically a free form pie. It's a pie that is not baked in a mm. pan. It's baked just on a sheet pan um like not not a not a pie plate but like just on a open face sheet pan with the edges folded up over the filling uh you can check out a picture of it on third law blogs instagram page uh we'll have the picture posted up there like um, subscribe follow share <laughs> yes all that um so this by the way is the first time i've ever done a savory food item on mm. this show i just kind of wanted to prove that a pastry could be savory um which mm. honestly is not news i mean if you've ever had a hot pocket or anything like that 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 is a savory pastry um I actually i wanted to quickly just define what a pastry is because that's something that i don't think i've ever talked about here before mm. um a pastry so <laughs> thank you let's reiterate that <laughs> it's very good um a pastry is any flaky dough with any kind of filling it could be sweet or savory um and likewise, a pastry chef is actually not somebody who makes specifically pastries. I refer to myself as a pastry chef um, because a pastry chef is someone who makes any kind of dessert. I don't know how that whole terminology came about, but basically I'm a pastry chef. I make more than just pastries, but pastries are specifically flaky dough wrapped around mm. filling things. Yeah. Um, so this particular galette, I sauteed onions with mixed greens, some rosemary, a uh, little bit of garlic, and I um, added some sh sherry to it and cooked that down and then layered alpine Swiss cheese with cheddar, um, a little bit of garlic, aioli, mustard, and um, the sauteed vegetables and then more of the cheese. And then folded up the edges, baked it, and that's wow. that's that. <laughs> wow. Well, the Italians are gonna love you when you go there. Um, I'm feeling yeah. strangely inadequate. <laughs> so. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you, Jacob. Oh, and it's gluten free, by the way. I just had to mention that all my things are gluten free, but this is too. Yeah. Huh. Wow. 
That was good. All right. Well, moving from one good thing to another, <laughs> we have Tammy Winter on, and we have some pretty interesting topics. Um, so we're going to talk architecture. Um, so first, what got you interested in architecture? Well, so I grew up sort of in strip mall hell. So I grew up in the the actual suburbs, a uh, suburb in of Dallas, Texas. Hmm. And I was out one day with my mom just thinking, you know, strip malls kind of have different businesses next to them. There's all sorts of things. So this particular one had an SAT prep tutor place next to a laundromat next to uh, some former other ethnic food place. And I just thought, wow, this is shockingly ugly. <laughs> and I and I think we've all had this, you know, where were you the first time you realized strip malls were hideous, right? Um, so I, I just Googled, like, why do strip malls exist? Because I couldn't imagine that there was any sort of natural constituency for strip malls. So I Googled it and found out that there are all sorts of governmental regulations that have kind of led the way for strip malls to become things. So that'll be things like single-use zoning or minimum parking requirements. Um, and so I don't think that there is a natural constituency for strip malls, and that makes me feel good about myself um, <laughs> because I don't think I'm alone in hating strip malls. But then just the first time I realized that architecture broadly was like something we should care about was last summer. So I interned here last summer and I was walking by, had the misfortune of walking by the FBI building. And I looked up and just thought, there can't be a natural constituency for that. That is hideous. <laughs> and so I Googled it because I wanted to know what this disgusting concrete building was. And in some ways it looks like the FBI should look, right? Like it should look like this dystopian, intimidating, kind of. intimidating unfriendly building. And it turned out it was this style called brutalism. And wow. that's when I fell into, I guess you, people fall in love. I guess I fell in hate with brutalism. And it, it's only intensified since then. Wow. Mm. So so where did brutalism come from? And why is it called brutalism? Um, like, can you just define that for us? It sounds very austere, to say the and least. And it is. Um, well, brutalism kind of emerged out of the post-war are, some of its underpinnings have to come from Europe. So Le Corbusier was a, he was actually a Swiss designer and a lot of brutalism's origins come from him, I guess, as it's, it's understood today and seen today. But so the root of it has to, comes from the French word that means raw. And brutalism really does, I think, embody that, right? So it's, a lot of it is exposed to concrete, sort of strips away all of the ornate, ornamental decorative decorations that we come to expect from our buildings or at least buildings of note hmm. and it's really just exposed concrete in a lot of senses and with windows here and there some good examples of it if you're the googling sort boston city hall it's disgusting um second only to dallas city hall our city hall is horrible uh, if you go to l'enfant metro station it just sort of assaults you right as you walk out of the metro so yeah it's it's just sort of this dystopian architecture but what's weird is that it was conceived as a radically egalitarian type of architecture so hmm. it's so amazing how different these like grand planning schemes are from how people actually interact with them on a daily basis what would have been the intent behind introducing that form of architecture though Right. So again, it's supposed to be radically egalitarian in the post-war sentiment. You know, egalitarianism was a very interesting. There were all sorts of civil rights movements going on. Um, 
But the idea was that architecture should be for everyone. And that led people to this sort of hyper-modern, again, concrete style. There are like brutalist playgrounds, brutal if you walk out you'll that see sound safe. Right, right exactly uh, jfk is behind a lot of the federal brutalism that we see so he kind of put the standards into place and a couple of years later hud was built and that building is a special kind of hell and then you keep walking in l'enfant and you see the smithsonian the air and space which should be the coolest the most modern most interesting building that one's a total architectural nightmare. It's cool on the inside, though. Right, um, which outside, some people would argue yeah. is what's important. And then you get to <laughs> Health and Human Services, and it's like, who is naming all of these buildings? And, and it's like, you think that the planners must hate whoever works inside of them, <laughs> and also the people who have to go buy them. Yeah. So I feel bad for anybody who's working in L'Enfant. You have my thoughts and prayers during your difficult time. <laughs> <laughs> hmm, interesting. So what are some, you know, you're talking about some of the architecture that you hate. Um, but what are some architectural structures and places that you really enjoy and, and that you admire? Yeah. So this is one thing I've been challenging myself to do lately. I kind of am like the old woman yelling at, old man yells at cloud. I'm like old woman yelling about brutalism. Uh, <laughs> but what's interesting is charting the, I guess, development of architecture through different cities. So a couple of months ago, I got really interested in which cities have the most architectural diversity. So you have a Detroit or a Chicago. Detroit has Beaux-Arts architecture. They have classical styles. There are good modern styles. In its heyday, Detroit really was, I think, one of the best cities for um, architectural diversity. You have a mm -hmm. Chicago. You've got the Polish cathedrals. You've got Renaissance. You've got Beaux-Arts. You've got Greek. You've got neoclassical. And then you have cities like San Francisco, which do something really well. So San Francisco, if you watch Full House, you, you know that iconic house. That's mm -hmm. Queen Anne's. You, they look kind of like these amazing townhouses, very narrow, but beautiful and kind of ornate. So you've got that. You have a city like New Orleans, which has its cultural history embedded in it. So you'll see um, Moorish architecture next to Spanish architecture, next to French architecture. And then you've got your cities that you maybe wouldn't even think of. So there's places in Nebraska, southwestern Nebraska, or maybe it's just southern Nebraska, has a ton of gorgeous county courthouse architecture. So like literal hmm. cultural fact. Um, Covington, Kentucky and Lexington, Kentucky both have beautiful architecture. So and then DC has a lot of high highs and a lot of yeah. low lows. You describe the lows. What are some highs? I mean, for people who may be listening who live in the city and or are new to the city and want to visit uh, some of those highs, what are they? Yeah, so DC has a lot of cool art deco. The National Union building is really interesting to me. Um, if you're walking around Metro Center, you, you see a mix of disgusting modern architecture, but also some really interesting sort of art deco throwbacks. But my favorite building in DC by far is the Library of Congress. And Bow mm. Arts is my favorite. It's a neoclassical style. It's actually kind of modern itself. Is the Library of Congress Bow Arts? Yes, it okay. is. And so, and right next to it, you've got the Supreme Court. And inside, that was influenced by Bow Arts architecture as well. So okay. they're beautiful. The Naval Academy also is another gorgeous example of Beaux Arts architecture. What do you think of the National Gallery of Art? I think it's beautiful. Um, and I, it's both the National Gallery of Art and um, the American Gallery, the American Art Museum. Those two are both beautiful as okay. well. Because I was just there the other day um, with a friend of mine who is uh, studying to be an architect at the at Catholic University. And he was walking through this place with us and just pointing out like all these different little facts about the building. 
Um, and one ongoing theme is that the entire building is divisible by triangles. So like the everything from the floor tiles to the windows to just hmm. every part of the building is completely made up out of triangles. Hmm. Is that is that like a certain style or? Uh, I don't know if there's a name for it, but it was definitely the intention of the hmm. architect who designed it, and it is a pretty interesting thing. It really helped me to appreciate the building as a whole hmm. once I, I realized that fact. I really like. Um, well, I don't know what you think, Tammy, of this building, but I I really enjoy at least from the outside <laughs> the African American History Museum. I have never been inside it, and I know I've heard some people who don't like it. I just think it looks kind of like interesting. It's like, it's like a Jenga, like skinny Jenga, like just kind of sitting next to the Washington Monument. I think it's kind of interesting. What do you think of it? Well, so the National Gallery of Art is modeled after the Roman Pantheon, so there's that. But oh, really? the, the you know, I have, I don't know what I think about it. It's just kind of, it's a bit imposing. And yeah, I can see that. <laughs> I guess the it, the copper color is interesting to me. It's beautiful at night. During the day, I don't know if yeah. I think it fits with everything around it. Uh, but good effort yeah. is what I'll say for that one. <laughs> it's all about the effort, as we say here in the Culinary Caucus. That's not what we say. All right. Um, so that could be. So so you talked a little bit about like government regulations and um, kind of how that influenced architecture. Um, but is is there like a wider political uh, component to sort of the philosophy behind architecture and sort of what um, like the way cities are designed, how that influences um, sort of political thought? That's a big question. You know, I social capital is one of the things that I'm just really interested in. Where does it come from? Where do we get it from? And a lot of this isn't necessarily something that can be affected, particularly by um, living in a city or not living in a city, so it's not that broad of a question. But I do think there are subtle design features that make your city more inviting or more hostile, um, mm. or things that encourage meeting and things that don't. I never see anybody just casually hanging outside of L'Enfant. It's hideous. It's not meant for that. Yeah. Um, but there are other things like how wide the streets are. You know, who is the street for? Um, do do the buildings invite? wonder or meeting and so you'll see a lot more people again for example hanging out outside of um the the library of congress than you ever will outside of the national air and space museum which is unfortunate because that should be like again one of the coolest places that you'd ever want to hang out yeah hmm. and i think just generally when it comes down to a more like local and personal level things like do you have porches versus do you have backyards? Yeah. I come from the land of sprawling backyards, and I was shocked when I got out here and saw that some people don't just have one porch. Some people have two, right? That's luxurious <laughs> to me, right? And porches draw people to the front of the house. You know, Jane Jacobs used to say you have more eyes on the street. Um, and so it's interesting to me mm. to see how we design our neighborhoods and our spaces of public meeting and who they're for and how and I think we should be more deliberate in how these are designed, right? To encourage those sort of serendipitous trust-inducing interactions with people. Hmm. I like that serendipitous trust-inducing interactions. I butchered that, <laughs> but I liked it when you said it. <laughs> awesome. All right, so let's move on to the next topic. And uh, <laughs> so this is not a topic that a lot of people know a lot about, but I know that you're really passionate about demographics and kind of a big picture, like what's going on with people. Yeah. But sex ratios. Um, so what got you interested in this? 
Uh, you know, it was my first frat party when I was a freshman. Hmm. I, everything I needed to know about sex ratios I learned either from fraternity parties or <laughs> from libertarian conventions. So if anybody understands the power of sex ratios on dating, mating, interactions, it's guys in fraternities. Like, these guys are scientists and they don't even realize it, right? <laughs> so at my school, you could go to a frat party if you were a girl, but if you were a guy, you needed a wristband. So, of course, you do that. Why do you do that, right? You want the numbers to always be in your favor. If you're a woman and you're on a dating app, um, the numbers are in our favor, right? There's way more of you guys than there are of me on dating apps. Um, mm. And then at libertarian conventions, I would just notice that it was kind of like a sausage fest. Oh, my gosh, my dad's going to be so upset that I said that. Yeah, <laughs> it was like a ton of men everywhere, and there were always, like, six women. And we would all see each other, and you'd give each other that nod, you know, that you... Yeah, it's like, yes... Yeah, with you. <laughs> it's like when you're the black kid at the tennis match, right? You always kind of know each other. <laughs> Never experienced Never that. Experienced Never experienced that. that. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> All right. Well, that, on that note, um, so talk a little bit more about like how this is experienced on college campuses um, and like why colleges in particular should be interested in on sex ratios and um, particularly when it comes to like we talked a little bit earlier about like um, sexual assault and things like that. Yeah, well, what's interesting is that on a global scale, sex ratios, people kind of understand what's bad with them when we look at a big, broad context. So mm -hmm. you have a country like China, which sort of aborted millions of women out of existence, although we don't know if those numbers are correct. There's a lot of data to suggest that um, the gap between men and women might have been overstated because people weren't registering their baby girls for obvious reasons. Yeah. Uh, oh. The same is true of a country like India. But then on the other side, you have a country like Russia, which has a lot more women, and all of Eastern Europe, really, a lot more women than men. Mm -hmm. And so we understand on a global context, these things might not be good. It's interesting. On the Russian-Chinese border, you'll have couples with Chinese males and Russian females just to pair them off. Hmm. Um, America doesn't have the same problem, right? We don't have this great <laughs> excess of men or women. I, I think the, the numbers are about 51% women, 49% males. But on college campuses, we've kind of created our own sort of sex ratio imbalance. So currently, the college population is about 60% uh, female and about 40% male. Hmm. And so roughly speaking, what that means is that for every two women graduating from college, there's one man. And this affects all sorts of things, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think the two people, two groups of people that could be most concerned or maybe should be most concerned are college educated women and um, this sort of growing swath of males that we're all concerned about, right? AEI, Brookings are talking about them, these men without work or you know, men without a specific direction. These are the two groups that I think maybe lose out from, from the dynamic that we see on college campuses. Yeah, so going back a little bit, you talked about how it's the college campuses right now are like 60% women, 40% men. Why is that? Because it didn't used to be that way. Um, like why is there, like are there so many more women graduating yeah. from college. Well, so I'm not a sociologist. This is why I got kind of apprehensive when you asked what my expertise was. I, so I should preface this by saying I can only guess and sort of say what I've read. Mm -hmm. um, but I yeah. think one of the things developmentally, men do seem to, to get to the places that we get to a bit slower. And that's not like, oh, men are bad or anything like that. But it, there is sort of like a developmental lag. And a lot of times this starts in K through 12. So a lot of 
the way our education system, at least publicly speaking, is kind of conceived of in the classroom, skills that seem to come more naturally, more quickly to girls, obedience, um, conformity, and I don't mean that in a, in a pejorative way, those skills um, tend to sort of favor girls. Mm-hmm. Um, and so our classrooms are structured in such a way that we sort of, we set girls up to, to you know, get to these milestones quicker, but we're also just kind of, that's how we are. Um, and I also think it's probably, I guess, the, the things that are, I guess, where the job market is going in the future, um, those jobs that are really popular right now, service jobs, those jobs are oriented towards women. Um, and so that also might be part of why you have this class of women, you know, going to college and, and maybe aren't seeing the similar thing for males. Yeah. And I think, I think there's maybe some interesting um, questions there as to like the, the skills gap with labor markets and whatnot that uh, maybe we can go into another day. Um, yeah, that's, that's really fascinating. Um, so who exactly should be interested? So you talked a little bit about like why um, non-working men should be interested in this, but also sort of the up and coming like college women um, or college graduated women should be interested in this. Um, but like, does this have any like political ramifications in terms of like policy or anything like that? Yeah, well, I do think first that this past election, people were very curious about what was going to happen with the Latino vote. So um, it's at the largest share of our population that it's ever been at. um, Mm -hmm. And that's where the focus was. But I kept thinking, well, it seems interesting that we're not paying attention to this growing rise of single women. There's this new demographic of women who um, is totally liberated, like we don't live the same lives that our mothers live, um, but we also are delaying marriage. We are more interested, I won't say more interested, but we we are very career-minded. And a lot of us are single. So I think that demographic is one that in the next couple of elections will shape up to be a really interesting one to kind of track its political trends on. Hmm. I think after the election, you saw it with the Women's March. There were something like a million women um, marching maybe in D.C. itself, but also all over the country and all over the world even. Mm -hmm. So I think that's going to be one constituency to watch, and we'll see how that shapes policy in the future. Yeah, definitely. Your language suggested that you are one of that new demographic. Is, yeah. that, is that correct? Yeah, I'm kind of hostile towards <laughs> that categorization, but it's a group of women who are sort of upwardly mobile urbanites in a lot of senses. Mm-hmm. So cities like D.C. and New York and Dallas, where I'm from, these cities have, I won't say an overabundance, but there are a lot more women who have, say, college degrees um, and are single or not single or whatever uh, than men. Now, for my ladies listening who are curious about where that situation might favor you go west go west go to seattle go to the bay area if you can afford the rent um, that's yeah <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna uh, say that right now <laughs> so that's that's kind of one of the funnier is go to salt lake city um great city yeah so Actually, that's that's the, interesting the top ranked city for uh income mobility is salt lake city mm. um yeah interesting. a little bit tidbit of information right there but for men where should they go? You should, you guys should stay put. DC is great. There are for <laughs> yeah. every for every one of you, there are two of me, so you have your choices of women. You could get on Bumble, which people yeah, say what? is sort of like an what's Bumble, right? Yeah. It's like the Tinder, but the girl has to message first. So Was that like a feminist response to Tinder? It or? was. <laughs> um and I think as in a lot of things, there are under unintended consequences, right? So 
what Tinder and all those other like awful apps do is sort of give women an upper hand. You have a pick of guys. Mm-hmm. One thing that I've like heard you have to do, you have to list your height in your bio. Um, so women have their pick of men. And, in uh, centimeters or feet? Well, I guess. <laughs> all right. Because no, uh, <laughs> I can put hundreds. Anyways. I think you're six feet tall, so you should be fine no matter how, how you want to represent that in your bio. Yeah. Uh, but... but Interestingly, Bumble kind of gives the guy the opportunity to reject you first. So I'm curious about what women's experience is on that app because, you know, ideally what it does is give you control over the the guys that you're interacting with, but it might just switch the sort of dating app advantage that women have um, Mm. and give that to men, which I'm not saying is a bad thing because, again, pretty much every other app favors us. Yeah, and it's the opposite on college campuses where, and and something that I've heard you talk about before is the way that, um, because it's like the dating favors men on college campuses and they're the ones that are dictating the terms that has sort of unintended consequences um, on the college campus. Right. So when you have whichever sex is in the minority kind of gets to dictate what the dating mating cultures are going to be. So if you have a college campus with a lot more women, um, Sarah Lawrence College is a good example of this. I was reading a book called Datanomics by John Berger. I would recommend that to anybody who's interested in this subject. But so at Sarah Lawrence College, it's about 75% women, 25% men. And those guys have their pick of women. And so on those college campuses, you see a lot more hookups, see a lot fewer committed relationships. Um, On a city level, I presume you would see fewer marriages. Um, But there also seem to be some sexual assault implications because women have less control over the norms surrounding sex. And when the opposite is true, um, when you're, say, at a Caltech or at an A&M in Texas where I'm from, you have much different culture. There's a lot more committed relationships, fewer hookups, and lower rates of sexual assault. So the Mm. question I think there would be how much of that is a selection effect and perhaps we're not giving enough um, weight to that argument, but it does seem to be compelling and it it makes sense intuitively that that whoever is in the minority kind of gets to dictate this. It's just scarcity. Markets and everything. Exactly. That's very true. Incentives matter. Um, So, sorry, I have a question. Do you have any idea what the sex ratio is in Italy? Uh, I am not sure. <laughs> this is so, very pertinent. Yeah, so you're going to Italy. So yeah. I, well, if you are going to be in Europe, I would tell you maybe make a trip on over to Eastern Europe, and, and you should do just nicely over there. So. Oh, yeah, they all want to marry an American man and get into Well, there's a lot more of them, so... <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> but perhaps it's that, too. I don't know. Well, I'm looking it up right now, and according to this website... You could also go to Martinique. There are Martinique. Oh yeah, in the Caribbean, right? Um, oh yeah. So it says there are ninety-four point eight two males per hundred females. So there so there are, you go. Oh, okay. You might you the might. The ratio is good. You it's have to like, let me know how that goes for you. <laughs> <laughs> but but as long as you're here, DC is just a great place for you to be as well. So yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, no, there are a lot of interesting implications about this. I don't honestly know very much about this subject, so. Thank you for enlightening us, Tamara, um, a.k.a. Tammy. Um, we appreciate your guesthood very much, and we hope that you enjoy the food on the Culinary Caucus. Thank you guys for having me. This is fun. Yeah. yeah, of course. All right. And uh, so from all of us here at the Culinary Caucus, before we wish you a great night, we just want to say uh, go to thirdlawblog.com, subscribe to our uh, 
Well, just follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and that should be good enough. Follow us on Facebook, Third Law Blog. That's 3RD Law Blog. And from all of us here at the Culinary Caucus, have, have a, a great, great 